0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow
0: Your Mind. This is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part two of our series on furry fish. Uh, We had great fun in the last episode talking about some bizarre myths and legends of fish completely covered in fur or covered in blotches or patches of fur. Uh, So we talked about some old reports from Iceland of a so-called shaggy trout that lived in the lakes and streams, allegedly uh, was said to be covered in fur, was said to be poisonous when eaten, or was said to have other strange effects when eaten. Um, We talked about Marco Polo's secondhand reports of a giant furry fish found dead in a river near the Chinese city he called Kinsai. Uh, We talked about possible explanations for reports of fish covered in fur, if there is in fact anything these reports are based on. So, for example, the possibility that Marco Polo's furry fish could have been maybe a, a half remembered report of a decomposing river dolphin, or the idea that some reports of furry fish or fish with furry patches could actually be observations of fish with parasitic infections, such as a water mold called Saprolegnia. Uh, but today we wanted to start with some more weird reports of furry fish from across the ages furry fish and, and fish like creatures. So I think the first one we should do today is The Japanese Furry Fish. And this one is mentioned in a book that I brought up in the last episode. It's a book by a British cryptozoologist named Carl Schuker called The Beasts That Hide From Man. And Schuker sources this claim of this bizarre creature to a book called The World in Miniature, Japan, which was published in the early 1800s, edited by an author named Frederick Schoberl. And this book records a claim that goes like this. Okay. So the book says there's a river in Japan and it's full of strange creatures that measure about four to five feet in length. They have scaly bodies like fish, but their heads are covered in hair like a human's hair. And these creatures don't sound like a type of fish strictly because they can allegedly leave the water and move around on the banks of the river. And uh, from here, I'm going to quote from from Shuker's summary uh, on the banks of the river, quote, where they fight or engage in boisterous games with one another, emitting loud cries as they disport in a singularly rowdy, unfish like manner. However, their rumbustious behavior swiftly transforms into savage aggression if they spy any people Unhesitatingly attacking and killing their hapless human victims by disemboweling them. Yet, they do not devour their bodies afterwards. Okay, so a weird report. As usual, there are at least a, a couple of options you can start with at the get-go. One is that this could just be imaginative storytelling. Somebody is telling a, a, a yarn based uh, purely on you know combining elements out of their imagination. But it could also be some kind of distorted account of something somebody saw in nature. I guess if we want to consider possibilities of uh, of imaginative storytelling, you might want to look for similarities to other types of known uh, beasts, monsters, or creatures from the local mythology.
1: Yeah, and this made me turn to a, a couple of different things, but, but one that certainly came up was the Japanese uh, ningyo, a sort of mer-creature described, uh, at least in some accounts, as a huge fish with the head of a beautiful woman. Uh, she's often said to be protective of humans and warns them against dangers. So in a way, sort of a, the opposite of, of other models of a myrrh creature or a siren or what have you. Um, mm-hmm. and, and this is a, a, a pretty famous creature in Japanese mythology. In fact, it's even been brought to life in the, in the films of Miyazaki. Uh, if you've seen uh, Heo Miyazaki's Ponyo, uh, this is kind of a cute take on the idea of a ninyo.
0: Yeah, I was reading about the Ningyo in an excellent book that I actually own a copy of. It's called The Book of Yokai, and it's by a folklore scholar named Michael Dylan Foster. Uh, the book is out through University of California Press. Uh, And if you're a fan of of Japanese monster legends, I I highly recommend this book. It's really good. Uh, So a few facts from Foster's telling on the Ningyo. So first of all, though, the word Ningyo is sometimes translated to English as mermaid or merman. It literally just means human fish. And so, Rob, do you remember how in uh, the stories we talked about in the last episode, how the shaggy trout of Iceland and Marco Polo's report of the furry fish, they were both said to be poisonous or to kill people who ate them? Mm -hmm. So uh, Michael Dillon Foster notes that there is a classic medicinal encyclopedia of Japan that notes that the bones of the ningyo... Uh, which I think it just reports as if it were any other mundane animal. It's like, yeah, here are the animals you can find. One of them is the ningyo, this half-human, half-fish. Half if you take those bones, they can be made into a poison, quote, with wonderful effect. But he notes even more stories on the other side of the scale, stories of the ningyo having exactly the opposite effect, where eating their flesh or even just looking at one of them sometimes can guarantee you a long and prosperous life.
1: Hmm, that's an interesting detail, because on one hand, it sounds like uh, medicine in general, right? I mean, there's so many different properties of the natural world that you take it a certain way or under certain conditions or in certain quantities, and it's beneficial or potentially beneficial.
0: And then uh, in other quantities or situations, it can be deadly. Totally, totally. Or different parts of the same animal. Now, again, right, yeah. I want to be clear, we're not actually saying that, like, the bones of a mermaid will make you live forever. Yeah,
1: or- don't <laughs> butcher a mermaid based on anything you hear in this episode.
0: But I just mean, uh, yeah, yeah, I think you're correct that the logic of it follows the the logic of a lot of real properties of, mm. of uh, medicines you would find in nature. But there's one thing I wanted to mention that's in the Book of Yokai. So there is this one classic tale about the Ningyo. Uh, there is a fisherman who catches one of these things and then cooks it and then offers it to a friend and the friend doesn't want to eat it because he's weirded out by the fact that it has a human head, you know, mm-hmm. even though it might taste like delicious fish and the the muscular parts, it's got a human head. So he's like, yeah, I don't know. So he takes it home with him and his 16 year old daughter eats it. I don't know if some details are lost there. Or if She's just like not squicked out by the human head like he is. <laughs> um, but she eats it, and then, as a result, she lives to be eight hundred years old okay. and spends her life as a kind of superhero nun traveling the country, doing good uh, like a like a fish human cannibal holy hulk, and she eventually enshrines her body in a cave by the sea. <laughs>
1: Um, speaking of, of yokai, I do have to mention for anyone out there, uh, and also speaking of Miyazaki and Studio Ghibli films, uh, there's a wonderful film titled Pompoko that came out from Studio Ghibli, uh, many years back. And it is, it is a film about tanukis, about magical tanukis. And there's a, there's a full English dub of it. I think you can, you can watch this on HBO Max if you subscribe to that. Um, or you can watch it in the original Japanese. But it is—it's absolutely fabulous. Do not be scared away by the fact that it is um, a film about magical tanukis who do magic with their testicles, uh, or as it is translated into into English, they are raccoons using their raccoon pouches, but. We know their testicles. Um, it's it's a wonderful film. It's totally it's uh, totally for for kids and adults alike. It has a strong environmental message, and there's a whole sequence in it where the tanukis, because it's not just tanukis in it, there are also fox spirits, and then there's a sequence where the tanukis create a yokai parade they take on all of these fabulous yokai forms all of these various classic ones you may have seen in illustrations like the giant skeleton and you know uh, umbrella creatures that sort of thing uh and it's just absolutely gorgeous so i, I, I highly recommend that film if it's one of those you've, you've kind of shied away from because you weren't sure if maybe if it translates um you know, you know to a non-japanese audience it absolutely does it's a just a beautiful film clancy brown does one of
0: the voices so oh you know, really yeah <laughs> I haven't seen that one, but now I want to check it out. Yeah, yeah. at least fast forward to the Yokai parade. But anyway, uh, g- going back to that description from the book of this creature in the in the river who has a, a head full of hair but scales like a fish on its body. Uh, I mean, you can see how th- that's sort of similar to the Ningyo tradition, but I'm not sure there's actually any connection there. It might just be a, a few superficial similarities. It's hard to tell.
1: You know, speaking of fishy yokai, there's another yokai called amabae, which looks very much like what we just talked about, except throw in a bird's beak and some <laughs> slightly different feet. And uh, I was reading about this, and interestingly enough, it became something of a mascot for uh, COVID-19 pandemic measures in Japan. Hmm. Um, and you'll see posters that say, like, stop COVID-19, and it'll be a picture of this creature. Uh, I was reading about it in this... Uh, Anthropology Today article by Claudia Murley titled, A Chimeric Being from Kyushu, Japan. Um, uh, and uh, this is the quote from it. Quote, presented as a mascot, but viewed as an icon of protection, this uncanny little yokai from southern Japan in the pre-modern Edo period addresses our lives as they are caught in a suspension of our usual temporal and spatial dimensions, a monster, a hyper object, and an art effigy of our (laughs) pandemic present. Mm Okay. Anyway, it's also cute. It's a cute creature
0: it is very cute it's got like yeah it's got the the cute bird face the fish scales and then just like a big old luxurious mane of hair mm-hmm. but anyway whatever the similarities to these other uh legendary beings of, of japanese mythology it re- regarding this one story from from this uh book the world in miniature japan Sh- Shuker asks you know if these stories are based at least in part on real observations could there be anything that we could figure out they might be talking about? And he passes on an interesting guess that was suggested by a curator of mollusks at the Royal Museum of Scotland who's named David Happel. And Happel uh, says, what if these stories relayed by Schoberl in the 1800s are based on observations of the northern fur seal or Callorhinus mm. ursinus? Yeah, A seal might kind of fit the bill. Um, so th- the stories would have... Had to have been translated uh, from the sea coast to the river somehow, because fur seals don't usually—you know—they're not going to go all the way up the river. I don't know; they might mess around in a river mouth, but um, but otherwise, a fur seal could partially match the description. It's not scaly, but it does have flippers. So, in body, it is what Shuker calls superficially fish-like. <laughs> But it is pretty close to uh, the right size to match this story. It does have the notable whiskers on its head and, of course, fur on its body. They do definitely come out of the water and romp around real good. Uh, So maybe, possibly. um, uh, As to the the stories about the aggression, again, it's hard to tell if this is based on anything, whether that would be part of the original observation or just an embellishment. Um, with, With these fur seals, while they can bite, northern fur seals do not seem to me... To be especially noted for aggression towards humans, uh, they don't have like a disemboweling vertical. And of course, when
1: you get into like disemboweling and, you know, any kind of account of, of animal um, attacks, like there's so many additional factors. Like, mm-hmm. did you see this animal disembowel somebody or was there a body found? And these animals were nearby. You know, this could be the result of scavenging, of decomposition. Uh, there's so many additional factors to consider, but those are not factors that necessarily impact the myth making in any given scenario.
0: Right. So it's hard to tell with this story. I think this is one where it's it's difficult to get a sense of whether this is based on something somebody saw or or whether it's more imaginative. Uh, but but yeah, uh, I, I like to think that somebody saw some seals and then just just went wild. Um, I mean, but- seals like some other creatures we will be discussing
1: here. Yeah, under the right circumstances, uh, they can look very cute and mm-hmm. uh, and noble, but in other situations, they can be quite alarming. Uh, if oh, yeah. I was in the water once. Uh, this was uh, uh, what was this? this was one of the Hawaiian islands, uh, and there were some uh, some seals in the water, and of course, humans were trying to stay away from the seals but occasionally a seal's just coming in and then you're you're right next to it and it can be extremely alarming
0: especially if they're leopard seals
1: don't yeah. don't go swimming with those yeah yeah seals seals can be quite quite alarming and then even if certainly if you've seen footage of of them them frolicking about on the uh, on the shore as alluded to in in, in these poten- potential accounts of seals then uh, you can imagine how people might uh decide you know it's best to stay away from this. This looks like a situation that might end in disemboweling.
0: You know, one more funny story uh, that comes from Shuker's book, while we are on the subject of uh, the Royal Museum of Scotland, where that, uh, that uh, curator was who had the idea mm-hmm. that maybe this story is about seals. The Royal Museum of Scotland also has in its collection a furry fish uh-huh. taxidermied and mounted on a wooden plaque. Just like our patron saint, Big Mouth Billy Bass. <laughs> and in fact, uh, you can look up pictures of this one. It might have been the episode art for the first episode. I'm not sure. Um, but uh, but anyway, it looks a lot like the photo, the hoax photo that we talked about in the last episode, where that guy claimed to have caught a shaggy trout in Wisconsin.
1: Yeah, it kind of looks like it could easily be some sort of weird folk art pillow. Mm-hmm. Uh, it looks very soft, very luxurious.
0: Yeah, it's clearly a fish, but it is covered in thick, luxurious white fur. Again, like the forearm of a polar bear. Mm. Alas, this is not a genuine furry fish, but another hoax. Uh, the text that is underneath the fish, the mounted fish, says that it was caught in Lake Superior off the coast of Ontario and, uh, and was mounted by a taxidermist named Ross C. Job. And it again repeats that allegation we talked about in part one uh, from the other hoax that the fur is an adaptation to the extreme cold of deep Canadian waters, which almost makes me wonder if it's this is sort of intentionally a joke and is like meant to be understood as a joke.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, like taxidermy as a a craft and ultimately an art form is going to give way to artistic creations. And we see that throughout the world of taxidermy, whether you're talking about uh, jackalopes
0: Mm -hmm. or Squirrels and chipmunks that are made to be drinking tea, that sort of thing. (laughs) (laughs) But at least not everybody was in on the joke, because uh, Shuker explains the story of where this came from, like how it ended up at the Royal Museum of Scotland. Apparently, the museum acquired it when a woman brought it into them after she bought it in Canada, thinking it was real. It was a real animal. And then she brings it into the museum and says, hey, I want to know more about this fish. Can you tell me about the fur-bearing trout? Uh, once she found out it was a hoax, she donated it to the museum.
1: Well, you know, the preservation of hoaxes is, is also uh, important, uh, absolutely, because it yeah. will uh, it help us it helps us realize what's real and what's fake, and the, the story of our sorting all of this out. All right, so at this point, I thought we might turn to uh, the Americas. Uh, Because we, uh, uh, more specifically, uh, we're going to look increasingly towards Central and South America. Uh, I was reading uh, uh, the work of uh, folklorist Carol Rose. Uh, She has, again, those two wonderful tomes of, of, uh, you know, encyclopedic tomes of mythological and folkloric creatures that I often turn to. And in it, uh, she mentions the Hoga. This is described as a lake monster in the traditions of Mexico, known in South America as the Andura, And this was apparently described as a giant fish creature with the head and ears of a pig and, quote, extremely long barbs or thick whiskers around its mouth. It also had fangs. It could also shift colors from red to green to yellow. And it was described as a ravenous beast to
0: be feared by humans. Whoa, I like this. So giant fish body, head and ears of a pig, barbs or whiskers on its face, fangs, can change colors, uh, might attack humans. Right. Uh, and,
1: and of course, this instantly brings up a diff- couple of different possibilities, you know, some that are definitely within the fish world, and we'll get to some, uh, some real-life fish that could potentially match up with some of these descriptions in a bit. But also, we're reminded of other uh, non-fish, but fish-like forms that we find in the wild. Now, some of these accounts are based on the, the writings of um, of Ambrose Paré, who lived 1510 through 1590. This was a French surgeon, and he mentioned the Hoga uh, legend in his book Monsters and Marvels, writing, quote, Its head and ears are not different from a terrestrial swine. It has five whiskers a half a foot long or thereabouts, similar to those of a big barbel. Its flesh is very good and delicious. The fish produces live offspring in the fashion of a whale. If you contemplate it while it is disporting itself swimming in the water, you would say that it is now green, now yellow, and then red, just like the chameleon. It keeps more to the edge of the lake than elsewhere, where it feeds on leaves of a tree called hoga, from which it took its name— It is very toothy and savage, killing and devouring other fish. Indeed, those bigger than it is. That is why people pursue it, hunt it, and kill it. Because if it entered into the conduits, it wouldn't leave a single one of them alive, whereby the person who kills the most of them is most welcome. Wow. Now, I've seen connections here between this legend and that of the furry trout, Uh, but I can't help but wonder... If if this is indeed a, a natural creature that is being described here, or it's the echo of a natural creature in uh, in myth and legend, then perhaps we're talking about an otter, uh, mm. because certainly uh, you know there there are otters have found uh, throughout the Americas. In South America, you have the uh, the, the giant otter, the South American giant otter, uh, which is is quite quite a, a specimen. They can look really intimidating. They're apex predators. They've been known to charge at boats uh, and. Um, and then even outside of, uh, of this environment, you look at, um, at, at North American uh, and Central American otters and, you know, they can still be very ferocious, very territorial. And if you take them outside of that cute context, they can be quite impressive.
0: Yeah, uh, Rachel and I were having fun Googling pictures of uh, South American giant river otters the other day, and they, they very much embody the spirit of uh, he protect, but he also attack.
1: Yeah, yeah, they they can look very ferocious. I found a wonderful photo of one eating a fish, and it has this this bloody fanged mouth, uh, and uh, and has this kind of almost humanoid looking uh, you know f- form to it. Like it looks like some sort of a squat creature just uh, hanging out in the water, uh, eating a, its its bloody prize.
0: Yeah, it looks like uh, flipping on a dime between adorable goobery dog face to just like beast from hell with bloody jaws.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think i mentioned before there's a, there's an old novel by Jeffrey Household, uh, the the author of Rogue Mail, uh, titled Dance of the Dwarfs that uh, that has has a, a very terrifying otter creature in it. Yeah. Um, it's it's kind of an outdated novel. It has some, some very colonial and um, and and macho ideas in it, but the yeah. like the central concept, the central monster encounter,
0: and the contemplation of of unknown
1: terrors uh, is, is quite well done.
0: That was the one that has giant otters that are at first mistaken for humans.
1: Yeah, and our, our, yeah. our main character begins to think he can reason with them and like leave gifts for them and communicate with them. And then pretty late, too late in the novel, he realizes that this is not possible, uh, that it's a giant river otter uh, creature <laughs> that is hunting him and will kill him. Now, as far as their place in Mexican lore, I was reading Otters in Mexico by Juan Pablo Gallo. Uh, this came out in 1986, and the author points out that, that Mexico is home to three otter species, though their numbers have declined in modern times. They were known to the Aztec and Mayan peoples. Uh, one popular Aztec ruler was even known uh, by the nickname ottozotl, meaning the spiny one or the otter. And there, uh, there are also emblems of of this otter uh, in Aztec uh, uh, art and it's it's quite ferociously it looks kind of like a kind of like a lion um mm. but also uh, you know has these kind of aquatic dragon like qualities to it yeah uh now the the Mayans knew them as Tzula or the dog of the water because certainly it, when you, you know when you start observing an otter if you if you don't already have a firm classification in mind, you might ask yourself, well, what is this creature that in many ways is like a fish in other ways is like a dog. Uh, what is this thing? Uh, or in K ca- or yeah, may you may even describe it as having pig-like features. Sure. Now you look in other cultures and, and they encounter similar, uh, scenarios, similar category confusions regarding the, uh, the otter, the old Anglo-Saxon name for the otter, uh, essentially meant water snake. And, uh, and to the Celts, it was water dog. So again, we see that interpretation. And apparently there was debate among, um, Celtic clerics as to whether the flesh of an otter was fish or meat, huh. uh, which would be vitally important if you were determining what could be eaten uh, uh, during Lent. And there were, there were even some monks, the um, uh, Carthusian monks of Dijon, France, they were forbidden to eat meat at all, so they only ate the meat of the otter as they determined that this was fish. Oh no. <laughs> Now, this may you may well wonder. Well, what does otter meat taste like? And perhaps some of you out there know for certain and can uh, and can chime in on this. Uh, but you'll find various claims online that it tastes rather gamey. Uh, I was also reading about it in Dove and Purark's microscopic analysis of feather and hair fragments, which cites older texts about the taste uh, about the about the the taste of sea otter. Apparently. The uh, Alouette people of the Bering Sea described otter meat as having the taste of mud and in older times did not eat it as they equated the otter body with the human body and used it as, as a reference point for human biology. And apparently if you did hunt and kill the otter for food, you had to appease the person of the otter. So there was this idea that it wasn't only like a physical resemblance. There was perhaps some sort of like spiritual connection um, mm that had to be um, appeased if you were to consume of
0: this flesh. Like a like a ritual justification of the kill?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, Russian fur hunters who encountered uh, these people in these traditions, they apparently tended not to eat the otter either, though some writers have compared it to tasting favorably, the f- flavor profile comparing favorably to lamb. Uh, so, yeah, a lot of these it seems to depend on preparation and who's— uh, who's judging it but it does sound like it tended to taste kind of gamey um, and uh, and wasn't to everyone's liking. Now otters also pop up in Norse and Scottish mythology. In Norse traditions uh, the god Loki kills the dwarf otter while the dwarf was is in the form of an otter. Uh, and then And then the Scottish uh, tales uh, tell of the of an otter king who would grant wishes and travels with this kind of royal guard of seven black otters. Whoa, I like that and Rose makes mention of this uh, particular otter as well, um, uh, Dobhar Chu. Uh, this is the the Otter King, a fearsome monstrous otter, uh, also known as the King of the Lakes. And it is said to not only hunt animals, but to hunt human beings as well. And there's apparently a gravestone in County uh, Leitrim that's said to depict, or, to, or may have once depicted, a fatal encounter with this uh, monstrous otter, with the King of the Lakes. And uh, I looked up a picture of it, and uh, I can't make much out of it. It looks like it's very much degraded uh over the years but um uh, supposedly this may have once resembled an otter murdering somebody
0: now it appears to be very lichen encrusted yeah
1: now you'll find other monstrous otters and otter-like forms in folklore from around the world including some um, native american traditions such as the ti holt from navajo traditions which is apparently kind of a combination of an otter and a bison and, and this being had a son, and when this son was abducted by the spider woman, uh, the creature uh, shed tears, and these tears caused a great flood. So again, you know, uh, we always have to, you know, acknowledge that there's a, a fair amount of, of creativity and myth making going on that is not directly connected to observations of the natural world. But I do love the idea that at least some of this may be due to just observations of the weirdness of the otter, mm-hmm. and then and then how this category confusion is then uh, is then launched into the realm of of legend and lore because uh, again i mentioned that the the giant otter is an apex predator but but this mm-hmm. is this is often the case with with any otter species like they they tend to not have uh have uh, have any enemies in the wild except for human beings so they're 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 pretty they're pretty tough little creatures and sometimes not little at all
0: <laughs> they are they are wonderful goobery marvels of nature uh, and, and while the otter is quite real, I guess to bring it back to furry fish, I, I don't know if we've directly said this so far, but maybe now it is time to break the bad news, which is that really, I think there is no such thing as a furry fish or mm-hmm. that there there might only be if you're really willing to be generous and, and loose with your definition of furry. Right. Because I think all of the reports we've talked about so far are either known hoaxes Or they are stories that could be some combination of just like imaginative, creative storytelling or misremembered reports of other types of animals where there is some other explanation that seems more likely than the idea of a fish covered in fur or hair of the sort that we're used to seeing covering the bodies of mammals. And I think we can be pretty certain of that because of an understanding of of evolution and phylogeny fur is a trait of animals that developed along a totally separate lineage from fish. That doesn't mean that fish can't have some bits on their bodies that can resemble fur, but they're not going to have mammalian fur. And so I think that should bring us to uh, a section we should do here about the biology of fur. What is fur and where do we find it in the animal kingdom and why do we find it there? Uh, and, and I think the the first question I've got to start with, because this is one of those things that's like a question that's popped into my head a million times that I've never looked it up to confirm, are fur and hair the same thing or are <laughs> they different? Did did you have an intuition on this? I mean, I always assume that, that fur is a matter of
1: perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I, the hair on the top of your head is essentially fur, but we just treat
0: it differently, think about it differently and label it differently. You, you are wiser than I was. I, I For some reason, I was thinking there's got to be some kind of biological difference. Not really. I mean, so fur is made up of hairs, and hairs are filaments of protein, primarily the protein keratin. Uh, in the case of, uh, of mammals, primarily alpha keratin. Some people might make an informal, descriptive distinction between hair and fur, reserving the term fur for, like, short, dense coats of hair that cover the whole body of an animal. But there's not really a fundamental biological difference between a dog's fur and the hair on a human's head. It evolved from the same ancestor, and it's pretty much the same stuff. Though within that range, of course, these hairs can take very different forms and serve different functions, and I'll explain more of that in a minute. So fur is one of the primary traits of mammals as an animal class. Mammals are usually defined by the facts that they are warm-blooded animals that give birth to live young, secrete milk, and possess fur, Uh, though some mammals, such as whales, have evolved to lose most of their hair. In fact, there there is broadly uh, strong biological truth to the simple observations that even a child would make to see the distinctions between birds, reptiles, and mammals, right? You know, if you ask a kid what is the difference between them, they might say, well, birds have feathers, reptiles have scales, and mammals have fur, and that's broadly correct, with of course, you know, the exceptions about whales and and, uh, cases of that sort. But yeah, broadly, that is true. Those are major differences between these classes of animals. Uh, So I was reading an interview that uh, had some interesting stuff in it that was uh, for Scientific American, an interview with the mammologist Nancy Simmons of the American Museum of Natural History. A mammologist is a zoologist who specializes in mammals. Uh, This was done by by Kate Wong in the year 2001. And uh, this brings up an interesting question, which is, did the mammals that existed at the same time as dinosaurs have fur? Now, at the time of this interview, uh, Simmons didn't know the answer to this question because, of course, it can be difficult to know a lot of things about the soft tissues and outer coverings of long extinct animals. Hair doesn't generally fossilize, so the paleontological evidence is sparse, though, of course, you know, you can learn some things from uh, special fossils that might preserve a kind of imprint in, in some kind of uh, uh, substrate or soil uh, or from genomics, maybe you might be able to learn some things about the deep past there. Uh, I was reading a more recent article uh, in National Geographic by Riley Black from 2014 that highlights uh, at least one fossil find that does make it pretty clear that at least some mammals had fur by the Mesozoic period uh, because there are some impressions of fur left stamped in a, in a fossilized uh, piece of mud. So I think we've learned a little bit more since uh, uh, this interview I was just talking about. But another thing that's brought up here is the question of what are the origins of fur? And I think it still seems to be the consensus of of evolutionary biologists that hair evolved in correlation with endothermy, uh, commonly known as warm-bloodedness, though we've discussed some ways that the terms warm-blooded and cold-blooded, at least when used as a binary, can be a little bit misleading. But with that caveat, mammals and birds regulate their internal body temperature through metabolism to keep the body at a stable, relatively high temperature compared to what is achievable by uh, so-called cold-blooded animals like reptiles and fish. And there are a number of big evolutionary upsides to endothermy. Endothermy allows more powerful and sustained muscular activity, so athletic stamina that is not really available to uh, so-called cold-blooded creatures. It allows more freedom to occupy different kinds of environments. And it even has some very, uh, very interesting and less obvious advantages. One of my favorite is the hypothesis that maintaining a stable high body temperature is a major guard against fungal infections picked up from the uh, f- picked up from the environment so these fungal infections just cannot tolerate the hot bodies of birds and mammals I think this came up when we were talking about some of the uh, the you know sort of the fungal hell of the the post Kpg extinction period yeah. But while endothermy gives you all these superpowers, you know, it lets you be much more of an athlete, has stamina, sustained muscular activity, more freedom in what kind of uh, environmental niche you can occupy, it comes with big costs, great energy costs. You need to eat more to maintain that metabolism to keep keep the heat on. And so if you imagine you're designing an animal that maintains a stable, high internal temperature that exceeds the temperature of the environment – this means that you're going to be constantly fighting against the fact that you're losing heat through the skin and the breath and everything. It's just going straight out into the air, and that heat is very energetically expensive. So one obvious solution is to get some insulation, just like you would if you know, you're know you losing too much heat at the walls of your house. You can line them with insulating material to get, try to keep the heat trapped in. This is believed to be probably the primary function, definitely one of the primary functions of fur insulation against heat loss. Fur keeps precious body heat inside by trapping a layer of warm air close to the skin. Insulation seems to be especially the role of uh, what might be called underhair. So if you imagine a the fur coat of an an of a mammal this whole body is covered in fur, uh, you might see like sort of longer glossier stiffer hairs up on the top and then underneath them sort of shorter finer hairs. Those, those under hairs are especially helpful with insulation. Um, but of course, while insulation might be the primary driver of the evolution of fur, there are plenty of functions of fur. For example, what are those other hairs up on the top doing? Well, they might do some insulating too, but also they provide a couple of various kinds of physical protection. So hair can literally protect the skin against cuts and scrapes. Uh, it might not seem like it offers that much protection, but it does something um but also those outer hairs often called guard hairs these can have a kind of more oily texture uh those can help repel moisture keeping the insulating under hairs from getting wet
1: yeah like if you if you look at a, a cat or i guess a dog too you you kind of get a an education in the various uses of the hair because it, there's there's a lot of difference between like what the whiskers of a cat are doing uh compared to the uh like the belly hair of the cat which its oh, yeah. main its main purpose is uh, well, of course, to to insulate, but also to to tempt the human hand closer to the belly, uh, where will then be attacked by the sharp <laughs> the
0: sharp teeth and the sharp claws. Well, I, I like that you mentioned the whiskers because that highlights another totally different but also extremely important evolutionary adaptation of of hairs, which are uh, hairs that provide significant sensory information. Mm-hmm. These are sometimes known as vibrissae, v i b r i s s a e. So, these would be hairs that are equipped with some kind of tactile receptors or, or nerve cells that help the uh, animal sense something about its environment with these hairs. So, the whiskers on a cat are a great example, or the, the hairs on a naked mole rat, you know, this underground mm-hmm. dwelling animal. Uh, But then, of course, uh, hair and fur can play huge roles in survival and reproduction just through changing the appearance, the outward appearance of the animal. So coloration and patterns on the fur can play a role in everything from hunting and camouflage to uh, providing warning signs to potential predators to mating and fitness displays.
1: Uh, I'm reminded in, in all of this as well of, of things that seem like hair, that may look like hair in other animals but are not. Uh, for instance, if you look at, the, at what appear to be eyelashes on uh, like a, a ground hornbill, um, which, is a, which is a bird, uh, mm-hmm. if you don't know what you're looking at, you might think, oh, look at, those, look at those beautiful eyelashes, look at those hairs on the bird's face. Well, they're not hairs, they're feathers, but they do serve a similar purpose to, uh, uh, to some of the hairs that might appear around the eyes of a mammal.
0: Yeah, and so there is definitely some convergent evolution across the animal classes. I mean, one one thing that's true is if you go way, way back, far enough back, it does seem to be true that – Feathers on birds, which of course are derived from their dinosaur ancestors. Um, Fur on mammals, which is probably derived from some kind of uh, dermal structures on proto-mammals, like the synapsids. And then the scales on reptiles, those all probably have a common genomic ancestor, but that goes way, way back. So the truth is fish don't have fur because they are on a totally separate evolutionary uh, line. They're on a different branch of the tree of life than than the mammals that developed the fur that we're familiar with today. But the fact that fish don't have fur does not mean that there are not some there might be too many negatives there. But anyway, what I'm saying is some fish really look like they have fur and so I figured now we should talk about some fish that have um, interesting examples of external features, fibrous coverings, or something like that that look like fur.
1: And, and we have to add here that when we say fur, we're going to go ahead and include like the broader spectrum of fur, also yeah. meaning hair, because some of these fish are described uh, or are more described as having things like beards or more like hair. Uh, but in all cases, we're dealing with something that may Uh, seem like fur to some observers.
0: Right. So the first example I want to mention is the wonderful, the glorious, the hairy frogfish, also known as the striated frogfish. The scientific name is Antenaria striatus. This is a predator within the frogfish family, which is uh, Antenaridae. And the frogfish family are ocean-dwelling carnivorous fish, which I believe we discussed to s- at least to some extent in our episodes about the sargassum, the seaweed, right?
1: Yeah, we did. Uh, because there's one type of, um, or at least we, we were focusing in on one type of frogfish that makes its home in the sargassum uh, a lot of them don't live so close to the surface, but they are these are these are fascinating little fish. Uh, uh, I was I got to visit the aquarium in Maui, and they have some frogfish. Uh, there that you can look at, and they're just—they're all so wonderful because they're—they're of, often this weird mismatch of of looking a little bit gross, but also sometimes super colorful, like like bright oranges, you know. Mm-hmm. And then they'll have these like little grumpy little faces that, in many ways, seem more humanoid than fish-like. They, you know, they look like little yep. goblins, like little brightly colored grumpus goblins uh, that uh, <laughs> that live in the sea. Talk about
0: human-faced fish, yeah, yeah. Well, the hairy frogfish is, is a, a beautiful grumpus goblin. Um, <laughs> so these are, these are a species of frogfish that uh, grow up to something like about 20 centimeters or maybe 22 centimeters in length uh, maximum. And they tend to live along the bottom of the ocean on the seafloor, sort of walking along like we described with other frogfish species. Um, but the hairy frogfish or striated frogfish in particular – is matted in these bizarre-looking, fluffy appendages that truly do look like hair. It's like a big wad of shag carpet just sucking down fish on the seafloor. Now, this is not actually hair or fur. These fibers you see covering the outside of the hairy frogfish are uh, dermal appendages known as spinules. Um, they seem to be used primarily not for insulation, but for camouflage. So the the hairy frogfish is an ambush predator, and it, w- it wants to look like something other than an ambush predator. It wants to maybe look like some kind of other mass of organic material, maybe blend in with a coral reef, look like just some kind of thing sitting there stationary in the environment, so that fish will get close to its big dangerous mouth. And, uh, and it's worth looking up videos of its hunting strategy. You can find these pretty easily online. I found a good clip uh, from a documentary by the Smithsonian Video Channel. Mm-hmm. And you can see this critter at work. So the hairy frogfish sits there and waits in this mop of spinules. And then when prey fish are close by, it can suddenly expand its mouth cavity by a factor of about 12, creating this powerful vacuum force that sucks in the prey in a split second. And so uh, these creatures are, in in many senses, truly fearsome predators. I've I've read it claimed at least that they can prey on other fish that are about the same size as them. Oh wow! And I have to say this:
1: the the one that you shared a photo of, it looks like it crawled out of Google Deep Dream. You know, it has this. This, this how yes. wild
0: its appendages are. Yes, it's quite psychedelic in multiple ways. So yeah, it's it's got that abstract quality, like it was a hallucination by a machine elf, but also it is a long haired hippie. Uh, so this is not a furry fish, not in the true sense of mammalian fur, uh, but I think this is about as close as fish get. This is a beautiful, shaggy creature, uh, a predator for the ages.
1: Now, here's another example of, of, of something we might well classify as a furry fish. And that is the bearded goby or pelagic goby, an Atlantic species of goby, uh, that it's, it's some, yeah, sometimes called the the bearded goby. Uh, but then there, you also have, um, uh, the bearded eel goby, which is also sometimes called the bearded goby. And the, the name here refers to barbels under the chin and lower jaw. So barbels, and I think the the, the quote I read earlier um, uh, from that monster book, uh, uh, mentioned barbels uh, slightly mm-hmm. in, in describing the physiology of a, of a, of a purported creature. But mm-hmm. uh, barbels are slender, whisker-like sensory organs, such as those found in catfish. Uh, they are not, of course, real beards, uh, and they can be found in various places on a fish's head. But when they pop up under the chin, certainly you can understand our urge to say, oh, well, this this creature looks like it has facial hair. Yes, yes. Um, and you see some examples of uh, the bearded goby, and boy, it does, it looks like it has some sort of like
0: a neck beard or a chin strap or chin strap beard, sea everett yes. coop kind of a beard going on. I, I'm inferring this fish's theological opinions, um, <laughs> yeah, for, it, from its facial hair,
1: yeah. <laughs> Now, these are technically mandibular or mental barbels, and generally they're present to aid in low-visibility food searches. So even though they might look like they're not doing anything, they are helping the fish to find food.
0: Okay, so you could say that in a way these are— these are a case of something like convergent evolution with the mammalian vibrisi, right? The uh, yeah. you know the, the sensory hairs that might be like in a cat's whiskers or something. Uh, these whisker like organs. Again, they're they're not exactly hairs, but they, they do a similar thing. They're sensory input.
1: Yeah. Another example of this is the the beardfish. Of the genus Polymixia, uh, these are found in tropical and subtropical waters of the Atlantic, the Indian, and the Western Pacific Ocean. They live in the deep, and they have these two elongated barbells, like underneath their chin, and, and that's where they get their name. Uh, so it's a it, it looks like a totally different sort of beard, uh, but it you can understand why it was referred to informally as the beard fish.
0: It looks more like the like. I don't know, Rammstein fan who has his, his goatee in one long braid. Yes. Yes, it does look like, like a
1: braided goatee kind of a situation. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Very cool. Look for a fish.
1: Now, these are just a few examples, uh, you know, the most, probably the most, out, uh, the most obvious examples of, a fish being compared uh, often by name, to beards and fur. But obviously, you're going to have barbels occurring with a, ver- a wide variety of fish. You're also going to have other stuff going on with their fins and other appendages at times. And there are, there are numerous situations where one might look at such a creature and say, oh, well, that, if I'm going to compare that to my own body and the bodies of of terrestrial creatures, then I might well say that that creature looks furry, that creature looks hairy or that creature looks bearded in some fashion or another.
0: Yes. This catfish has a weird beard and mustache.
1: Yeah. And we can imagine how like that kind of thing through the echo chamber of, 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 of oral tradition and storytelling and history could take on the form of like increasingly hairy or increasingly bearded fish. And then what happens when that account runs into, say, accounts of otters and seals and so mm-hmm. forth? I mean, I, I think ultimately that's, that's where I end up landing and thinking about all of this, is that you, you probably have just multiple things going on in the oral tradition, and then ultimately in the written tradition as well. Um, and they, they end up converging and running into each other, and you end up with these, uh, these often uh, elaborate uh, uh, reinterpretations of, of what is going on in the natural world
0: yeah totally. So there is truly no such thing as a genuine furry fish, but there are a lot of fish out there with with glorious shagginess of various kinds. There are some wonderful uh, uh aquatic and semi aquatic mammals the the otter and all that uh, so you know once again uh nature is stranger than fiction
1: yes now we of course we'd love to hear from everyone out there who has any experience uh with accounts of hairy fish and, and these other creatures that we've discussed. If you have accounts or encounters with, with otters, I would love to hear about them because otters, I mean, even here in Atlanta in a very urban environment, uh, there are otters around there. Like I, one day I was picking up my, my son from school and there's an otter just because there's a body of water close to the school. And apparently otters live there.
0: I, I had no idea that's metal. Yeah
1: yeah I think it's a golf course so they're i don't know how metal a golf course otter is, but but still. golf otters <laughs>
0: <laughs> they're golf ball retrieving otters
1: yeah uh, so yeah let us know if you you know what if you have any um intimidating encounters with uh with, with, with otters. Uh, we'd love to hear about that strange fish that, uh, appear to have, uh, you know, interesting barbels or things that look like beards or fur. If there are other great examples from folklore and legend, and, uh, and, you know, in different traditions, uh, yeah, send them in. We'd love to review them. In the meantime, if you'd like to check out other episodes of stuff to blow your mind, you'll find them in the stuff to blow your mind podcast feed. We do core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. We do an artifact on Wednesdays. We do listener mail on Mondays. Uh, we do a rerun over the weekend. And then on Fridays we do a little bit of weird house cinema. That is our time to set aside most of the, the serious uh, matter
0: and discuss a weird film. Huge. Thanks as always to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your